This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Dreamland, usually with Whitley Strieber, this week with Jeremy Vaney. But I am not alone. Oh, no. I, I come bearing the gift of uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters, who is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Technological University in Butte, Montana. He received a PhD in anthropology from The Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in hominin, uh, hominin, I'll, I'll pronounce this eventually, hominin, I think I said it right the first time, evolutionary anatomy, uh, archaeology, and biomedicine. Recent research examines the premise that UFOs and aliens could be our human descendants returning from the future to study their own evolutionary past. His new book is The Extratempestrial Model, and uh, it's not every day that you get to have a scientist who's enthusiastic to pick up UFO and alien abduction literature and try to model some sort of um, you know time travel scheme off that. So I am thrilled that he is here, and uh, Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Appreciate you having me on. So your first uh, your your first book on the subject was identified flying objects, and we're talking about time travel. My my natural first question is, um, what what did you not say in the first book that you are saying in the second book? Why did you need a second book? Yeah, well, there's um, <clears throat> actually a third one in the the works as well. Uh, should be <laughs> out in June of this year. So. What's that um, called? Uh, it's called Revelation, the Future Human Past. And okay. the idea there is that, so the first book has been called Dense. And uh, for people that don't have a scientific background, it's it's there's some more technical terminology and, and esoteric jargon, so to speak. I try to minimize it and make it appealing to everyone. And my um, peer reviewers and beta readers helped with that a lot. So it's, I'm not saying it's not readable. It's just a little more challenging because of the science behind it, both in evolutionary anatomy and with regard to time and time travel, astrobiology and other things. Um, and also in the first book, I focused more on sort of these, the way we would apply science to understanding this phenomenon with mostly focusing on these four main areas uh, in physics, astronomy, astrobiology, and anthropology, of course, and um, sort of tied in a little bit about the the abduction literature and some UFO cases, but it was a somewhat minimal part of that. Whereas the second book, to answer your question, sort of flips that, where it's more about the abduction aspect of the phenomenon and then pulls into that conversation a lot of these same academic disciplines and others to, again, sort of not necessarily just make the case that they may be time travelers, but to look at what these patterns that we can observe among various contact modalities might reveal about this theory and other models put forth to explain the phenomenon as well. So it's kind of the flip side, I guess, is a, a way of thinking of it, that it um, starts with these closest instances of contact that you can have and then tries to identify what's happening there in um, the context of this and other models and uh, what we currently know in science. Is the science on time travel evolving? I mean, are, are there physicists who put as much time into this as they do like string theory and trying to figure out what's what there? Um, I mean, to some extent, it seems like it is. I really sense 1915 it's it's been something that people people have been looking into more um not just in the context of physics but also in philosophy um even anthropology our understanding of how backward time travel might work is also very relevant to how we understand time and um it's a very mysterious phenomenon um most would agree that it's not fundamental it's an, an emergent phenomenon. It comes out of something that is fu fundamental to our universe, but we don't yet fully understand what that is. Um, there's also a bit of taboo surrounding the subject in the same way that there is with consciousness and psychedelics and UFOs. So I think that's been a bit of a barrier too for 
um, valid research into the question. Um, but I, I don't know. There's a number of obstacles that in this present time, I think, are somewhat limiting in our ability to really understand time and to dive deep into this question of how we may achieve backward time travel at some point in the future. So you mentioned psychedelics, and I, I know you've also uh, delved into remote viewing, I, I assume other forms of psychic research as well. And so what is it about the UFO milieu that uh, that you've stuck with primarily for your books, as opposed to these other phenomena or, you know, areas of expertise that may speak to time travel. There's something particularly about UFOs that speaks to time travel as opposed to them, or, or is it all an amalgamation of, you know, potpourri of stuff? Yeah, I think it is. (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, I think this backward time travel model can explain a lot of the nuances of, of what's going on, uh, especially with regard to the craft themselves and, how people experience missing time and just a distorted sense of the movement of time, especially in proximity to these crafts. Um, I, I think it also helps explain the transmedium characteristics, how they can travel at tens of thousands of miles per hour as we see them without sonic booms, how they achieve these incredible accelerations and decelerations without getting splattered across the inside of their craft, assuming that doesn't happen. Um, and it's it, it, I think the the main thing that indicates that they are traveling through time that I focused on is is the physiology of the beans themselves and how unlikely it would be that we would get an upright walking bipedal hominin form evolve on a different planet um, anywhere close to us that they could find us that they could travel here. Um, and that they would look so much like us, be hominins by definition because of their bipedalism, but be just slightly more advanced than us, considering the roughly 15 billion year span of time that this universe has existed. So it's, there's just a lot more to this um, in the context of Occam's razor and the principle of parsimony that seems to indicate that they are us. They share so many characteristics, not just physiologically, morphologically, but also technologically. That seems to indicate that if these same trends in our own past continue, we will eventually arrive at the point that we become them. And really, if there's nothing in the laws of physics that say backward time travel is impossible, and there's been a number of studies uh, that have indicated that that's the case, there is nothing that forbids it. It's really only a matter of time before we figure out how to do it. And once we do, we would expect to see our descendants at various times throughout their own past. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing with regard to uh, the UFO phenomenon. And to answer your question, I mean, that's kind of, that was the main starting point for me. I uh, had that thought as a, a young child around eight or nine, actually, as a result of seeing Whitley's book up on the living room shelf, which I describe in uh, the first chapter of both books, I believe. <clears throat> but then um, beyond that the the morphological similarities i think i I mostly approach this as sort of a a nuts and bolts guy i've moved away from that more in recent times but coming from a hard science field and with my background in, in statistics and anatomy i think that was and normally will be kind of my jumping off point but as I've, yeah, as I've gotten deeper into the weeds of, of the psychedelic aspects, the consciousness aspects, I, I can't help but wonder if those are, are highly related. And a lot of uh, people have been you know, writing about that for decades. Um, maybe consciousness is even fundamental to this in some way. Um, I, you know, I can't say how. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that question, but there seems to be too much overlap between what we know of the mind and, and consciousness and, and what seems to be happening with regard to this phenomenon, especially when you factor in, you know, the telepathy aspect of this that's so commonly described among contactees and abductees. Um, that would seem to indicate that there is, if, if they are future humans, an evolution toward um, maybe even a hive mind or just a, a deeper understanding or use of our our electromagnetic consciousness or, or whatever this thing is that we call consciousness. 
All right, we will pick it up again with Michael Masters on the other side of this brief break. Don't go anywhere. Free Dreamlanders. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface, among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the close encounter experience? You have never heard any of this before. Them. It's a sir. Oh. UFO. Where'd it go? Disappeared. Them. Get it today. Available on Amazon.com. And we're back with Michael Masters, and he was just telling us that he uh, started off uh, as sort of a nuts and bolts kind of guy and is sort of getting less so lately. And I'm wondering, you know, when you start off nuts and bolts, sort of materialist view, and you bring the sciences in there, that seems pretty easy. Is it more of a challenge to bring your, you know, scientific knowledge or I don't even know what the sci whatever the scientific processes would be. Uh, do those translate the further away you get from nuts and bolts? I mean, it depends on what version of research you're talking about. Obviously, when we're you know looking at experimental lab-based research, it's almost impossible to bring that to this phenomenon. But and and I think one of the reasons I feel fortunate as an anthropologist in investigating this is because we oftentimes can't do that simply because you can't experiment on humans. So we have a number of other ways to study um, humans, human behavior, physiology in the context of observational studies. We still do quantitative research as well as qualitative, but it's not something where we can control for all variables like what you would have in a lab setting. So that eliminates cause and effect. We can't say this thing caused that thing per se, but through observation, and that's largely what I'm trying to do with regard to um, the abduction aspect in this, this second book, The Extra Tempestrial Model, I take an abductive approach where you look at patterns across various cases, and I examine 20 uh, specific cases in depth in this book, but then also draw in a number of other ones to sort of complement that research and make a broader case across a roughly 90-year period on five different continents. And in doing that with an abductive approach, you're not trying to say that it's not like inductive reasoning. You're not trying to say that, you know, this is definitely the the byproduct of, of these other factors. What you're saying is that you're trying to figure out what the best explanation is. It's inference to the best explanation, essentially, with, with, uh, with regard to abductive um, investigation. So, and, and I think, you know, if we take this seriously, one of the problems with the purely materialistic 
view is that we, we do try to bring that, that really materialistic um, method to something where it's, it's very difficult to circle that square. We can't apply the standards of evidence. We can't do hypothesis testing easily, but I think it can be done. And we're starting to see that more as the stigma wanes and more researchers are getting into this. But we can still apply a lot of anthropological methods to investigating this phenomenon. And, and that's essentially what I'm trying to do as a main starting point, while also recognizing the import of other academic disciplines as well. Is there anything that uh, studying their physiology uh, could tell you about our future in terms of what the planet looks like in the time that they come from or the content of pollution, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing? Is there anything about the, the atmosphere and the environment that you can glean from their shape? Well, possibly. I mean, if, if they are us in the future and natural selection is still affecting their evolution in the same way it has over long periods of, of time on Earth, not just with us, but obviously all plants and animals on this planet. Um, but the, the problem is there's a couple issues at play here, and it's why I didn't really try to speculate about what might happen between now and then, like why they would look the way they do because of, you know, traveling to Mars or living in space or underground or anything like that. A lot of other people have commented on that, which is fine, you know, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun to think about. But I mostly stuck to the, the long-term evolutionary trends, things that have dominated human evolution throughout the six to eight million year history of our species and all of the various subspecies that came before us in our evolutionary tree. Uh, things like increased brain size, what we call encephalization, uh, reduction in our mid and lower facial anatomy, reduction in body hair, um, longer upper appendages, longer lower appendages rather, and shorter uh, upper limbs just simply because bipedalism became our primary form of locomotion. Um, with larger brains come larger eyes because of the relationship between the brain and eye in both ontological and phylogenetic evolution. Um, numerous other things, too, with regard to speech. Um, reduction in our facial anatomy may actually require that we develop telepathy as a form of communication simply because there's only so much space within that area and we still have to masticate and swallow food and breathe and all of these other important things. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot that would seem to indicate that, that, you know, these trends are going to continue into the future, regardless of where we live. We would expect to see these because they, they do dominate the a very long period of time, millions and millions of years. Um, neoteny, pedomorphosis, retaining juvenilized traits into adulthood is another dominant characteristic. And if we project all of these forward, if we extrapolate into the future, we would expect to have bigger, rounder heads, smaller faces, less hair on our bodies, um, more juvenilized traits, look like uh, large children, essentially, in adulthood. And so I, you know, I, I do consider that, I do think about it, and we might be able to glean something from their physiological characteristics in the deep future. But again, and circling back to your first question with regard to the difference between these two books, is the first one I really focused on the archetypal grays and sort of overlooked how many individuals that are seen in association with these craft are described as human, exactly like us, which was kind of an omission of the first book, a glaring one at that, but realizing and researching and writing the second book that it is actually extremely common, and according to the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free study, the most commonly described form is human, just like us. So it indicates to me that we may be time traveling sooner than later, but with regard to what we might be able to tell about our deep evolutionary future, if the, the grays and you know more insect-looking individuals are from a very distant point, um, we may be able to get something out of that, but it's it's not really something I focused on simply because we can't know, and also because we're evolving into human-made uh, environments now. It's not just us and nature. We're not getting chased by tigers and uh, stampeded by mammoths anymore. It's more about evolving to the human environments that we created ever since agriculture, where we shifted from evolving to the environment to changing the environment 
to our needs. So now we and other animals are evolving to these human anthropocentric environments as opposed to prior to agriculture, where we are mostly uh, being affected by, yeah, the climate, sunlight, um, seasonal shifts, geography, topography, uh, elevation, any number of factors. We just don't really see that the same way, which I think makes it even more difficult to figure out what about their traits might indicate that one thing is happening that's influencing us more than others. Well, and also, I mean, it could be that in the far future, you know, we, we do populate other planets and yeah. then evolve differently. Um, because one of the things I wonder if the, the reason that the people who responded to the free survey came up more human than gray is because I think it was an international survey and um, at least it was, yeah. uh, until the 90s or early aughts. I mean, it may be different now with the internet and all that, but grays used to be an American phenomenon and people in Europe would see, you know, generally typically see uh, humans. Right. Um, so why would there, you know, why would there be a sort of territorial... <laughs> except that people are territorial, you know, like maybe in the far future, there's still a sense of territory or maybe in the far future, there's just simply humans from planet X uh, look like this and humans from Earth look like that. Humans from Mars or the moon or whatever look like this. Um, it could be something like that. But I do want to ask you, um, one of the, the theories that really strikes me as plausible if hard to explain uh that i think whitley was the first to talk about publicly is that whoever these beings are they need us to perceive them to be here that there's something about our perception that sort of pulls them here or concretizes them through the stories maybe even that we tell about them and it doesn't even matter what the story is at that point it just matters that there's some sort of you know, archetypal imagery that they can use to maneuver here. Would something like that be able to fit a time travel model? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, kind of to, to touch on the first thing you said there about the other planets, um, one of my reviewers mentioned that in looking at my second book, a draft of the manuscript, that perhaps at some point, in, in the human future from Earth, we go on to populate other planets and yeah, evolve to the characteristics of those planets. And then in coming back to Earth, we may expect to see variation among them that's more pronounced than if they're only coming back from this planet and maintain a similar trajectory to what we saw in the past. And, and that would also make them extraterrestrial in a sense. They still have their origins here on Earth. And it's not something I'd really thought about, but uh, I put into the book because I thought that was an important uh, insight, <clears throat> just as you mentioned, too. It's also possible, I, I mentioned this in both books, I believe, I refer to it as temporal ancestry, similar to how we have different ancestral groups now, where the main groups are Australian, uh, Western Europe, Native American, Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. And that it could be that the variation that we see among them is the continuation of those racial, what we used to call racial characteristics. And the fact that so many people describe them as looking East Asian, um, Whitley did in his book Communion as well, with the number of the individuals he observed, uh, that could be an aspect of their geographic uh, heritage, their ancestry, and it's people from that region who are involved in this research in the future. Or we may all be evolving toward those sets of characteristics that currently define that population. Or in the context of this temporal ancestry, that they may be coming back from different times spread throughout the future. And we would expect to see variation among, among them based on when they're coming back from. So a couple hundred years in the future, if we develop time travel in that amount of time, which I think we will, arguably it already exists, in our future, which means it exists in the past, too. They're all essentially connected at any point once it's created uh, back to the furthest point that they can reach from the future. Um, so if we're coming back from 200 years in the future, we'd expect to look almost identical to what we do now. There might be some slight variation among them and us. But as we get farther away from this point that we call now, our current present, then we'd start to see more characteristics that diverge from what we have as modern humans today, simply because of further evolution that's taking place among humans spread throughout longer periods of time. So 
I think there could be a number of things happening there, and I, I don't claim to have an answer to that. But I, I do think that's a good point that you made, that if we do start populating other planets, and I think we'll need backward time travel technology simply to do interstellar travel because of the, the twins paradox and the effect of special relativity and traveling at high rates of speed. You want to get home, not just to your planet, but also to your time. Otherwise, you'd be saying goodbye to everyone that you knew who was alive then. Depending on how fast you travel, you'd come back and they'd all be much older, possibly even dead. Um, but yeah, I, I do often wonder about um, the fact that, you know, people often ask me, why, why do they need lights? Why do we see their lights? Why, why do they let themselves be seen at all? Um, and yeah, I, I do kind of think that, especially in more recent times, that we're supposed to see them. Or if we are about to become them uh, at any point between now and, you know, possibly as early as 100, 200 years, uh, obviously tens of thousands of years if we're talking about the archetypal grace, but um, we would think that we as humans in the future would want to sort of start... Um, preparing past humans for that um, that reality, I guess, the understanding that, you know, we are them, they are us, we're moving toward that. At some point, it'll be very obvious. Uh, we'll be doing the things that uh, we're describing now in more primitive terms. We don't fully understand exactly what's going on, but compared to, you know, say Ezekiel's interaction was actually a UFO, describing it with a wheel and a wheel and burning embers and still a humanoid form, um, we can describe these things in much more modern terms because we have developed our technology to the point that it's now possible to do so. And in the near future, we'll have an even better understanding of these things if they are actually us. So yeah, I think maybe there it does fit with this time travel model because I think it, it may be a sort of primer. It may be uh, priming us for uh, the eventual understanding of that future reality. Hmm. Okay, let's hold that thought. Uh, free Dreamliners, we will be right back with Michael Masters after this. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with two contactees who had an 11-day close encounter experience and are now willing to speak about it, really, for the first time. To hear their whole interview and many others, subscribe to unknowncountry.com. Here's the excerpt. Did you see the man's face? Yes. Uh, actually, that one is very clear to me. It was kind of longish, and uh, he didn't look... He didn't look completely human, but he... Because he had very, very thin hair, almost non-existent, but he was young... I believe that it was kind of blonde, and he was very tall, like six, at least six feet, and he was so thin that he looked kind of strange. And what happened then? Well, he wanted me to to go with him or to stay with him. He wanted me to stay with him on the ship. And I'd been married for six months, and I wasn't about to go running off to stay on the ship. Now, surely you want more. You must want more. And there is more. Not only this contactee interview, but many others, many of them just as extraordinary, on unknowncountry.com. Plus, everything else that we offer, my audiobooks, the meditations, the talks on the key, William Henry's wonderful revelation show in its entire run, Anne Streber's brilliant and magical mysterious powers, and so much more. Hours and hours of listening pleasure. Learn from the meditations on the site. Really learn because they're real and they're valuable. Subscribe to unknowncountry.com right now. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on the subscribe tab. We are running very low on new subscribers now, and that should not be. It should not be happening. So you do it. 
You go there and you do it today. And we're back with Michael Masters talking about time travel, talking about his book, The Extratempestrial Model. And uh, you were just talking about why, you know, beings from the future would want us to see their lights. And, you know, I had a, um, I saw a UFO that was very much a ridiculous looking toy in the sky (laughs) that had porthole windows down the middle, top half spun one way, the bottom half spun another, red and blue blinking lights, self-luminescent green, just hovered in the air doing this. Saw it with my mom and sister on our way to Vermont. and I mean, it was ridiculous and it was so bright, like the whole thing, like self-luminescent green porthole windows with a light inside, but nothing that you could see, no discernible characteristics inside these yeah. windows. And, uh, it wasn't until I did a radio interview, you know, this was eighth grade that I saw the thing and a radio interview was like in my twenties, uh, in Vermont, it was a Vermont radio interview and a caller called in and said, I had seen the same thing. It flew over the treetops silently and he said the thing that really got me about it was it wasn't trying to camouflage itself at all and yet where is everybody like why did nobody see this except them and presumably us and maybe a few other people and that so so it was it was the same craft at the same time and place yeah it was yeah okay and uh well i don't know about the same day but i mean roughly the you know like the same year yeah yeah Probably and the same ship. So my, my question is, what about that aspect of it? Where it's not just, hey, look at me. I'm a spaceship. You know, very yeah. obviously a thing out of the Jetsons. But that it, it something that bright and obvious is very often only seen. But, you know, we talk about like only the people who are supposed to see it. What right. about that aspect of it where it's bright, it's obviously, but maybe it's directional? Or maybe it's only there for certain people to see. How would that something like that fit in? What would they be doing? Yeah, there? Why would they be doing that? Right. That's a really cool experience, um, to, especially to see it. That was it during the day when that happened too. Like you no, really this was it. stereotypical night. You know, Vermont, New Hampshire border in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, um, yeah that's between awesome. Between a couple of mountain peaks, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting too. I I noticed that you said the top was spinning one way and the bottom was spinning another. Um, again, you know, what we might be able to glean from seeing that description across the board or, you know, what, what, what that might reveal about even their propulsion system or destabilization with regard to the anti-gravity properties of this machine, which like a Frisbee, I made this analogy in my first book is it's more stable while it's spinning. Um, But the reason I I circle back to that is because in the second chapter of my, my, the second case study, I should say, it's probably the sixth, sixth chapter. um, Udo Wartena, someone who is, uh, came into contact with this very human looking alien uh not too far from here about 60 miles from where i am in southwest montana he was given a tour of this ship and that's what they described as the way in which they can achieve that um anti-gravity propulsion ability is that they have what he described as counter rotating flywheels on the outside of the ship and with um electromagnetism that's generated from that is how they can uh, get off of the earth. So yeah, I made a little note of that because I thought it was interesting. You mentioned seeing that as well. Um, but yeah, why, why have a, a kid's toy flying around in the sky? Um, you know, why, why tell us they're from various star systems as well? Why was Betty Hill and others told that they're from space well numerous other people are told that they're from time and that they are future humans coming back through time um i you know there there's that trickster element obviously that we have to consider that there is an intentional deceit or deception that's been going on probably because we weren't supposed to know who they were yet um but what we're seeing happen more recently especially with regard to um, disclosure is kind of a, a buzzword slash touchy subject, but um, what seemingly is us moving toward a fuller understanding of this phenomenon and an acknowledgement of the reality of this phenomenon over long periods of time 
maybe sort of the flip side of that, where we're starting to explore this and to be able to understand it and not have it destroy our economy, our political system, even though it will probably destroy a lot of religious systems. I think it does indicate that that trickster element may be coming to an end. Um, I I obviously can't know, but there just seems to be a lot of uh, little bits, little pieces of bread, or or I guess to use the ET analogy, little Reese's pieces that were put out for us to follow this trail to try to figure out what's going on. But we have to look through a, a lot of other sort of manipulated scenarios to really get a clear picture of it. And I think I think there is sort of a screen that's put into place there to keep us from doing that um, until recently. I, I do think something's changed. Um, I, it may just be a gut feeling. It may be drawn from observing a lot of these uh, cases over, you know, really since I was eight years old, over most of my, my life, and, and seeing something different. I think a lot of other people get that sense too, that something's shifted, something's changed. And, you know, at some point we may be looking at them landing in Times Square on, you know, the White House lawn or outside the Kremlin or, or wherever they decide to announce themselves. I think, you know, honestly, it, it may be wishful thinking, but I think it could even happen within our lifetime. Hmm. When you look at uh, what they're doing, you know, or what people report they're doing in terms of um, reproductive stuff, you know, taking ova, taking sperm, creating hybrids, all that fun stuff. Um, Is it, my imagination, is it fair to say that like what people report would be antiquated by our own standards, even to the point of like, how many of these experiments do you actually need to do? Um, You know, we at least imagine a day where we could take a strand of hair and from the DNA, we can clone people. Like, why aren't they doing that? Um, Is there anything about that that's, that even though it's scientific on its face, seems actually unscientific. Yeah, in a way. And, and honestly, that's another thing that connects the present to the presumed future is we, I, I cited an example, and it was actually just in all over the news recently too, that in uh, some Chinese hospitals, they have ejaculation machines, the same types of things, very crude versions of them, obviously, but the same types of things that a lot of abductees abductee males describe having put over uh, their penis and and to extract semen. Um, But yeah, why? Why keep doing that? I don't think it is just about a study or an experiment. Um, And that's kind of an area where my my perception of this has changed slightly. I think think it's more that there, I think it starts from a place where there's problems in the future related to reproduction. And I list a number of reasons why that may be in my second book with regard to current trends and longstanding trends, such as, for instance, a 60% reduction in sperm counts in men in the Western world only over a 40-year time period, which is a huge decrease in a pretty short period of time in vast swaths of uh, the human population. Um, there, there's also which issues is something Betty Andreessen to, talked about. Who, who is that? Betty Andreessen? I'm not familiar. Uh, so the Andreessen case, um, Ray Fowler was the, you know, the head of that. Um, he wrote the book, various books on it, The Watchers. Um, I think it was in The Watchers or The Watchers 2 where, yeah, she said that that is one of the things that they're concerned about is that the, the male sperm count is going down. Yeah, and, and in addition to that, we have issues with in vitro fertilization. It's good for individuals, but it's bad for the population because we're taking those with genes that make it difficult to reproduce themselves and encouraging those genes to propagate throughout the human population. It's also possible that we would screw something up with CRISPR, you know, trying to make designer babies or cure disease or live longer, evade senescence. And I, I list other things too, but... Um, it seems to indicate that we're moving toward that. And and yeah, I'm going to look up that resource because I hadn't heard of that, but it's yet another case where we start to see these patterns. Um, the Andreessen and I, I believe in Jim Peniston's download too. What's that? I was just saying the Andreessen affair was the original book. Okay. Yeah. I should be able to find it with the notes I made. Um, Jim Peniston and his, his download. I was really interested to come across that as binary code that he was allegedly given in Rendlesham. 
that they they explicitly state that same thing that they're having problems with reproduction they're coming back to get chromosomes one thing that i sort of looked at in a new way in this most recent book is is i i couldn't help but wonder especially with all the ubiquity of them around nuclear silos and all of the the different uh, contactees and abductees that are giving warnings about the environment and about warfare, uh, which is something John Mack was really interested in in researching and writing his books and working with contactees and abductees. Perhaps there is some bottleneck coming, and we see them so often, and they're they're doing these things to so many people because they're trying to collect as as many gametes as they can before there's some sort of cataclysm or catastrophe that really limits the modern human gene pool. And we're already as another explanation I, I gave in my two books is that we're already moving toward becoming essentially one inbred uh, population on and on the island of Earth. There's nowhere to go to that we know of another planet and just diversify our genome because we're all interbreeding and have been for uh, over 500 years now. So if that continues, we're going to have more problems we would expect with homozygous recessive characteristics and genetic uh, problems that may also be related to reproduction. Who knows? So it may be that they're doing this so much and on such a broad scale. And the scale of this shocked me. It was it was insane. Um, I, I'm reading um, uh, John Keel's book right now, the, the Trojan Horse forget what it's called but he says the same thing that that as he started to research this more he realized that it's it's happening on a, a scale that is almost unfathomable and arguably has been for a very long period of time so yeah that, to get to your question why i mean obviously i can't know but i do think that it's it's self-serving i don't think they're trying to do something to us as much as they're trying to do something for them and I think the scale with which we see this in modern times and in recent times indicates that, you know, maybe there is something happening in the future and there's a sense of urgency uh, to what we see with regard to gamete extraction and, and the hybridization program that seems to be associated with that. All right. We will take our third and final break. Free Dreamlanders. We will be back after this. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. And we're back with Dr. Michael Masters. We are talking time travel. We're talking his book, The Extra Tempestrial Model. And um, I, where do we want to go from here? I, you know, Maybe we get into what you know, time travel actually is, uh, what model works best, but maybe let me just back up to something you had said before the break, I guess. Um, so when we talk about, uh, that they may be here to change something, doesn't that, you know, from every sci-fi show I've ever seen, changing the timeline means making another timeline. So it won't actually affect their future. Is that wrong? Well, it depends on which model of time you subscribe to. The most conventionally understood explanation is what's called the block universe model. And in that particular case, no, that, that would be wrong because we wouldn't have any change take place. Um, with regard to the block universe, the best way of conceptualizing it is everything from the Big Bang to the very last bit of matter uh, leaving the universe and probably cycling back to the Big Bang through black holes would be my guess, 
is um, that all those moments in both space and time already exist. So in moving between and among them, you're not changing anything. You're just visiting different points. And this it's also referred to as landscape time, which is an easier way to conceptualize it, where all those moments are spread out in a large sheet. And you're basically just popping in and out of those different points. And in, in going back in time, you're not changing anything because anything that you did in that time is has already been manifested. Any change that took place, and again, we shouldn't really think of it in the terms of change, but anything you did in that time, anyone you interact with, interacted with, anything that you did was already a part of that time. You were just going to do what you had always already done. And when you get back to your home time, nothing's different because that was already a part of that past period. You just traveled from the future to go do that thing that um, at the time you left was already finished. So it only becomes an issue when you do look at it in the context of the multiverse. And I, I realized recently in writing a novel and also being hired to um, consult on a couple of time travel books and, and screenplays is that's just easier. It's a lot harder to stick to the, these true aspects of self-consistency, the Novikov self-consistency principle in a block universe, because it doesn't give you the range of options that you have in writing a time travel story that you do in the multiverse or with different timelines. So I certainly understand why that's the case. And I've seen so, it used to drive me absolutely insane where I would see all of these you know, great stories that start out and it seems that they're really adhering to the block universe model. And then it, something they, they need something else to happen and it just all goes to shit and they decide to, to just change it from there because they can't stay within that any longer. One of the only shows I've seen that, that did it well is the show Dark. Um, it's a German series on Netflix. I think there's three seasons. The third season kind of got a little a little bonkers, but the first two really do adhere to self-consistency and they, they clearly were consulting with people that, that do understand that block universe model. Um, so yeah, in, in my most recent book, I didn't even touch on the multiverse or anything about divergent timelines in the first book because I didn't really think it was relevant or necessary because there's very few people within philosophy and physics who even consider that possible. There's no evidence for a multiverse, and many think it's not even something we, we could ever have evidence for. So with um, the second book, just because it is kind of important to conceptualize how this might work in these different models, and especially with regard to this, this cataclysm idea, how might that play out in the block universe um, versus the, the multiverse or the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics? So I, I kind of dive deep into that in the context of both models to explain time. But it, no, if we look at it in the in the context of the block universe, you really don't have to worry about that butterfly effect or this ripple effect that's going to happen if you do something in the past because there is no change. You only get these paradoxes if there is change, and that really can't exist in, in the block universe. Well, this is a... Uh, maybe I want to save this for the subscriber portion because it's just going to be a, a can of worms, I think. But mm, I'll try to... I'll try to keep it light for now. Uh, in the block universe theory, we're essentially going through the motions. Uh, so what we see at, right, am I wrong about that? Like what we see as progress or regress or any of that, it's all pre-written. And really what we are is living. Uh, we're the, uh, an aliveness and that's it with this illusion of movement. Is do you agree with that, first of all? I mean, kind of. It's, this is the biggest stumbling block for people because as far as we can tell, this is the nature of reality. That yes, all moments past, present, and future are all equally real and they all exist um, in these different parts of the block universe. And And one of the the, the latent ramifications of that obviously relates to free will. And, and again, this isn't my theory. You know, the block universe model has been around for decades and, and it is, again, the most broadly understood and conventional model in, in philosophy and physics. But I still get a ton of hate mail from people when we start talking about free will because they really want to believe that they, 
the things they do that they're choosing and deciding and and you you do you feel that way i started calling it feel will instead of free will because we feel like we're making decisions and doing things on on our own volition but it doesn't change anything about how we live it, it's just you know looking at it from the present back as opposed to the present forward our future is somebody else's past and somebody else's future is our past. And we can see it written. We can see it all having been done. But to them, they still felt like it was unwritten, that it was going to be all of these other things that they could influence and change. It was already there. It's easier for us to see from the future if you think of it in the context of your lifetime. Looking back as an aged adult versus a two-year-old, the two-year-old thinks the future is wide open, and it is. And they're going to make decisions. They're going to feel like they're doing things throughout that time. It just so happens they're going to do the things they were always already going to do that as an aged adult, they'll look back on and say, well, yep, that's there it was. That, that was my life. Um, so I don't think it takes anything away. I don't think it, it you know has to cause ontological shock to come to understand that the future is written. You're, you're still going to be a part of it. You're still going to feel like you're creating it who cares? You know, I, I actually find it somewhat comforting. It's like going on vacation as a kid, you can just look out the window and you don't have to worry about paying for stuff or what hotel you're going to stay at. You, you're just along for the ride. And I, I actually find that very comforting. So then are the time travelers also written or is there novelty once you step foot out of time? Yeah, no, in the block universe, everything they're doing um, is, is exactly what was always a part of their past and ours. Um, our present, our future, their past, their future as well. Um, there, you can have connections in the block universe, arguably infinite connections, and there's no violation of causality. There's no violation of space-time. It's just uh, an intricately woven web of interactions. Okay. Well, um, I will save the rest of this conversation for the subscriber section. Um, but just in closing out here, <laughs> I went back and I listened to your 2020 interview with Whitley and, uh, he said he'd give, he would, when you were off the air, he would give you a, a sensing exercise that would make yourself visible to other levels of reality. Do you remember that? Did he end up giving you that exercise and did you try it and did it work? Uh, you know, I kind of have a memory Arguably, a lot's happened since 2020. Um, <laughs> well, I think you would know if you did a sensing exercise and then you were open yeah, to other no, I, I don't remember doing doing it. I'm trying to remember if we ever if we ever did talk about it off air. I, I don't think we did. From what I remember, um, we had a, a, a great long conversation. I think it was almost three hours, three plus. Um, but I, I don't think we really talked about that afterward. Um, but I do get the sense that he's very connected to that space and, and the visitors um, and talking with them, reading his work. Um, and I, I certainly would be interested to know. Maybe I'll reach out and see if uh, we can revisit that at some point. But but no, off the top of my head, I can't remember what we discussed or, or certainly doing it. Okay. And I also watched another interview with you, and I don't remember where it was, but um, you had said that you waited uh, until you had tenure before you published Identified Flying Objects. And I assume you were afraid of backlash or scoffing or something from, from colleagues or the school. Um, did that happen? How, how has this sort of scholarly reception been for you personally? Yeah, I mean, it was a very valid fear. Uh... It, especially back then. I mean, the 2017 New York Times article and everything with To the Stars and Go Fast, Gimbal Flare, it certainly helped in paving the way a little bit. I started writing that book in 2012 when it was definitely very taboo. Uh, I was thinking about publishing under a pseudonym for a while, decided not to do that, and it's better to to you know stand behind this and have these conversations. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I just hid behind a pseudonym. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely a sense of risk. Um, you know, I had a, a strong publication record and I was collaborating with really prominent researchers throughout the world. So coming into this space certainly presented some challenges and, and there was some fear associated with that. But 
To answer your question, um, no, it's been the opposite. I've had nothing but positive uh, vibes and encouragement from really up the chain of command through the administration at my university. I, I wrote an article for the MUFON journal that just came out this month in the March issue describing, you know, this this question of of science and, and stigma. And obviously it's anecdotal. It's only my experience that I can describe, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that it was the opposite of what I thought. Um, my, my chancellor, my dean congratulated me as soon as the book came out and it was getting international attention, various media outlets. Uh, I was asked to teach an honors class just about this research and about my first book. And, and just last spring, right before I went on sabbatical, I was given a research and scholarship award from my dean. Um, and there's a lot of amazing researchers doing a lot of incredible things at Montana Tech. And um, so it was definitely an honor to be selected for that research and scholarship award, especially because the only thing I'd really been doing over the previous year was related to UFOs and, and researching um, the nature of that reality. So yeah, it's it's I've been pleasantly surprised. and And that extends to you know, others outside of my institution with my academic colleagues and, and those collaborators, I was kind of worried about them finding out. And, and it's been the same, just um, a lot of encouragement and then, you know, good vibes across the board. So yeah, I feel fortunate. And I, I like to, I'm glad you asked that question because I like to talk about it. Again, it's just my experience. Um, but I, I think a lot of other people would be surprised to find out that, you know, maybe it's not all doom and gloom for them either. I, I would certainly recommend the protections of tenure because of, you know, that's what, that's what yeah. it's for. That's why we have tenure at academic institutions, but even without it, I don't know, we need to start pushing the envelope forward. We need to, to, to keep challenging that stigma. And uh, I think it's the only way we'll, we'll really make progress, at least with regard to the scientific community. We see a lot of progress everywhere happening right now, but there is still this lag and it makes sense. Scientists were used in this divide and conquer strategy from the 1940s on. We were pitted against those having experiences and those interested in this phenomenon. And we were the ones telling them, don't talk about this. It's, it's all in your imagination. You were drunk or high or delusional. So, so yeah, we have to sort of bounce back from that, recognize our role in diminishing conversations about this subject and then actively go out and and be the ones leading the charge and i i think you know there's indications that that is starting to happen and it's it's great to see in my opinion and did you find colleagues coming up to you and saying you know you know confiding in you i've had these types of experiences too yeah definitely um does that blow your mind or or shock you in any way it it did early on um, you know, <laughs> you've probably noticed this too, that most people who are really interested in this subject have had an experience, uh, what Jeff Crapel refers to as the flip, where people will be flipped because even no matter how staunchly opposed to this, they are how just bogged down in materialism they are, something happens, you know, not even just a UFO encounter, but um, a near-death experience or, um, you know, a psychedelic trip. It can be any number of things, some clairvoyance or precognition. It, it flips them. They now have to realize that reality is bigger and more complex than what they previously assumed. And it, it launches you into this new um, means of exploring a new world that you didn't know existed, even though it was all around you. It ran parallel to the normal. It was paranormal. So, yeah, I think... You know, at first it was a little bizarre because I was still grappling with the reality of these things as I got deeper into the weeds. But but now, you know, if somebody is is really interested in this, I, I know it's coming from somewhere. Not everybody. Like, I never had an experience um, with UFOs, but I was still deeply passionate about it. So there, there are those people as well. But the ones, I, I'd say the majority who... Are, are are deep into this it, it stems from something it stems from something that happened to them well we're gonna carry on this conversation and if anyone out there who's not a subscriber would like to hear it please go to unknowncountry.com 
and subscribe. I'm going to try to take Michael down a uh, spiritual rabbit hole. So we'll see how that goes. Um, his book is The Extra-Tempestrial Model. His website uh, is idflyobj.com. That's I. Well, yeah, yeah. That was, that was my bad. I wanted to keep it short, so I just shortened the name of the first book. But I've, I've since bought michaelpmasters.com, and it links to that. Oh, you did? That. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, it, it was kind Even of dumb. Better. I didn't want to spell that. <laughs> yeah, to try to make a website that nobody can spell or know what it means. It's just a random string of letters to most people. So, yeah, michaelpmasters.com is a much easier thing to remember, I think. Awesome. Uh, well, Michael, thank you for doing this, and uh, let's do a little bit more here. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you, Jeremy. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.